0: Uh, what got you there, what got, you, got, you? What got you there with what got you there? Uh, uh, what got you there with what got you there with what got you there with got Today you Sean uncovers the mindset you behind you two there? of the with greatest basketball players got of all time, Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant. Sean does this by talking to Ronald Lazenby, the author of the New York Times bestselling books, Michael Jordan: The Life, and Showboat: The Life of Kobe Bryant. They discuss how Michael Jordan changed the game of basketball on and off the court and why it was MJ and Kobe's mindset as much as their athleticism that made them some of the greatest players of all time. Roland, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you making out?
1: I'm doing well, Sean. Thanks for including me in your podcast.
0: Of course. Yeah, you, uh, you've you done some pretty incredible work in the past with some of the most legendary basketball players of all time. So this one is incredibly entertaining for me, and I know the listeners are going to love this one. I mean, you've done some great books. Who or what team has been your favorite so far to work on?
1: Well, uh, you know, I've enjoyed a lot of teams, but it it probably, you know, I first um, started writing about the NBA when I was hired to do the Celtics Green Book. And the uh, those 80s Celtics with the way they passed the basketball and uh, really that whole 80s climate of the NBA with the Lakers with Showtime. That was, um, you know, I'm just not sure we'll ever get that kind of basketball back. Uh, The by the 90s, even it had gone away and changed dramatically. But I have to say, you know, there's sort of a thuggishness that came to roost in the NBA. And I'm, you know, I, I did a lot on the Pistons then, the bad boys. I enjoyed those guys, but it, you know, it really did change the game. And so I guess uh, the Jordan Bulls were such a breath of fresh air. And uh, it, it, it was a tremendous amount of fun to, to be involved there. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, it's sort of a toss-up between the, the uh, 80s and uh, Michael's era with the Bulls. I would, I would probably go the Bulls. I, uh, I, I, you know, I was very close, uh, became very close with Tex Winter, the great assistant coach for the Bulls. And uh, it was quite a treat to see all of that era through his eyes.
0: It's funny because I'm, I can only imagine how difficult that question is. And you mentioned some of the legendary teams and legendary errors in the NBA. So when I say the name Michael Jordan, what comes to mind?
1: Um, You, you know, just uh, <laughs> overwhelming ferocity. Um, uh, it really couched in a strange package. He, uh, he possessed tremendous charm. Uh, it was just such a treat to interview him, to to observe him, to, to watch how he handled everything, and yet to know the—and uh, uh, to hear uh, from, again, Tex Winter, and then to observe, uh, to hear th- about this ferocity and uh, this— uh, almost policing of everything. And then I would talk with Michael about it. And he wasn't nonchalant about the way he policed and led the Chicago Bulls and how he used everything from a really wicked sense of humor to a really physical threat that he posed to his teammates. But uh and he would discuss it frankly if you if you caught him at the right time. He wasn't apologetic for it at all at all. He believed he had to do it to get his team ready to win. And uh, he had come to that belief by battling against the Pistons. I know this is a long answer, but uh, really just watching his uh, his public persona and then this, very intense drive to succeed and willing to to really establish new parameters and bend rules to do it.
0: I mean, we're definitely going to jump into some of those relationships with his teammates, but I want to go back to the early MJ. I mean, when did that monster competitive nature first come out for him?
1: Well, you know uh, that was uh, that was a fun part of the book. Uh, I, I absolutely
0: loved this section. I mean, so uh, for, for people who haven't read the book, you did such an unbelievable job dissecting the family dynamics. So I just want to say I really appreciated that.
1: Thank you. And uh, you know, watching this young competitor, sort of looking for the organic Jordan. I obviously it had evidenced itself in the fact that he had such ferocious battles with his older brother, Larry. And that whole relationship was salted by the fact that his old man sort of um, openly disapproved of of Michael as almost this effeminate guy. Why did he disapprove of MJ? Um, Well, why does any parent disapprove of a child? There's something about the child that either reminds that parent of themselves or of their parents hmm. uh, and, and there are you know sometimes uh, in in these family relationships there are family ghosts at work I think that uh, bring out anger and frustration in parents, seeing the imperfections in a child that are um, are their own imperfections and and um, uh, you know, there's a lot that comes to play in family relationships uh, and particularly um, not just the the parental disapproval, but the, um, you know, the sibling rivalry is a huge factor in achievement. Sometimes um, all of these things are, uh, you, you know, there's nobody who can sit back and score perfectly what makes one competitor over another. But you certainly look at these factors and you you can see them at work. And it's a uh, it's a fascinating thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the sibling rivalry. Any specific stories during his developmental ages about that sibling rivalry, whether it be a, a backyard basketball game or something like that that really stands out for you?
1: The backyard basketball games were the heart of it. Uh, Jordan was feeling all this disapproval from his father, Larry. His brother was a year older, really strong and well coordinated. Michael was thin and taller, and he couldn't beat Larry in one on one. And uh, you know, James Jordan for a while had laid out a full court there, and then it had settled into a a half court hoop. But um, Michael could not win, and these were really, really, really strong battles. And they went on for some time. And, you know, Doug Collins later, when he was coaching Michael, met Larry and saw this short, muscular, older brother. And uh, he sort of laughed to himself and said, you know, this tells me a lot about why MJ. It's <laughs> the way he is. You know, it was just one of these classic things. And, you know, um, the amazing thing about it um, Michael felt all this fatherly disapproval, which fueled him. It was almost like he was sticking it in the old man's face again and again. But, you know, fairly on early on in his uh, young adult life, uh, Michael Jordan, for his late adolescence, Michael Jordan had completely won over his old man who came to worship him. But that didn't matter that that feeling, that mountain of emotion that comes from that uh, disapproval at a young age, you know, it's like a fire that never burns out. And some of the sibling rivalry stuff does the same thing. It, It ignites these emotions that, you know, never decrease, even though, The the issues themselves that that people have in their families come to rest. Uh, the, uh, The things they trigger often do not. One thing
0: I was really interested to read about was his work ethic. And I just assumed he had this crazy work ethic throughout his youth. But that didn't really turn out to be the case, did it?
1: Oh, no. He only had one job for one week. He would, and he hated it. He he worked at a hotel and restaurant. And he cleaned the pool, and uh, whitey privats uh, or um, you know establishment. And he was embarrassed that other kids might see him cleaning the pool or doing menial chores. And Michael was a lazy teenager. Now he developed just immaculate. The uh, I mean top of the line. Uh, Work ethic um, approaches as a uh, as a professional athlete, but uh, one of the humorous things about this lack of work ethic as a teen was that he worked exactly one, one week in his entire adolescence, and he stayed <laughs> <case-dubbed> from <laughs> one week. Think about this: I work, you know, I had jobs all the time as a teen. Everything from unstopping sewers. To being a lifeguard, to I I had a variety, you know, construction, all kinds of jobs. Many weeks as an adolescent, I don't have a single (laughs) adolescent. (laughs) Michael, who works one week, his pay stub from that week is in the Cape Fear Museum in North Carolina. That's unbelievable. I cannot believe that lasted all those years. (laughs) Uh, And and how it resurfaced? Who can right? And I'm sure it was in a shoebox somewhere in Michael's house, and you know, when, when you become that famous, every little piece of trash you have becomes a uh, treasure.
0: Oh yeah, that's for sure. I mean, I, I would have I have to hit on his time in North Carolina. I'm a UNC grad, so I'm fascinated by this. Did he have a work ethic there, or was he just kind of going through the motions, showing up to practice?
1: Well, Roy Williams brought it to clarity for him. Roy, being an assistant, a gra- a graduate assistant at the time. Uh, Roy brought it to clarity for him that it you know it really was essential you, you weren't going to compete at that highest level without that top level work ethic typical jordan w- once he embraced that he he really embraced it i I think the other thing was uh that gave him a clue on how to dominate as James worthy told me in our interview uh Michael was a bully, and he bullied me. And of course, Michael was a freshman, and James Worthy was a junior. And w- w- when they met, and and he uh, Worthy laughed about what a what a bully Jordan was, and I think you could say he he employed that throughout his playing career.
0: I mean, I'm fascinated by how can a freshman come onto a national team like university of North Carolina and really impose his will when, I mean, at the time he was, he was a scrawnier guy. How did he really bully those upperclassmen?
1: You know, I, I I just don't think societal norms registered with him. Now, don't get me Hmm. wrong. Michael, um, Michael uh, was a complicated mix. That's why his biography was so fascinating. I've coached for years. I'm coaching a 14-year-old team now. And early whenever I I stop and explain, everyone thinks that what drove Michael was his ability to jump high. But what really uh, drove uh, Dean Smith to start him as a freshman was that Michael was probably the greatest listener he'd ever coached. And Michael could attend to anything the coach didn't have to tell him but once and and he could do it and you know every coach has to go back and repeat things over and over we as creatures humans are not great listeners but Michael was one of these incredible listeners. And uh, he he was just such a mix. He could could be a bully. He could, uh, you know, Michael also uh, is capable. He's incapable of empathy on the floor. And one of the things the Bulls had to do, they employed a psychologist, the great George Mumford, to begin to try to teach Michael a little empathy with his own teammates. But off the floor... Michael had tremendous empathy, for example, for handicapped people. His great-grandfather, one of the big figures in my book, Dawson Jordan, was just 5'5 and crippled. But he was a moonshiner, a sharecropper, a really tough figure. And, of course, he died about 85 when Michael was 14. And Michael had lived with him quite a bit of his life, and he revered this man. And throughout his career, Michael's first girlfriend, who was his long-term girlfriend from high school straight through, was a handicapped cheerleader from another team in, in his high school district in North Carolina. And um, he, he did quite a bit with handicapped fans and people at Chicago, but he was absolutely adamant that not a word of publicity go out about it. Occasionally things would pop out, but really was a complex guy. So much to admire, so much to question, so much to, um, you know, This sort of falls in disbelief that this guy can be this big of a jerk. Uh, It's a a real combination.
0: Yeah, I mean, I just assumed Mike was an anomaly and he was just this, ultra-competitive guy all the time. I mean, you, you think about him on the court and then all the time he spent on the golf course as well. I mean, it seemed like he never left that element, but I guess he really did. And now I kind of want to talk talk about his transition to the NBA. And, I mean, did, did Carolina kind of force him out and say, hey, you've got to go to the NBA? How did that transpire?
1: Well, that was Jerry Krause, you know, Michael's, uh, the GM that Michael battled with, but his position was that Dean Smith essentially um, gently shoved Michael out the door, hmm. although Krauss didn't use the word gently. <laughs> uh, and, and the whole Carolina program is complicated and difficult to read. The Pro Scouts hated it because Dean Smith's system was so tight that Pro Scouts could not read the athleticism of the players. They really couldn't tell who was athletic and who wasn't. And it it put them at great risk in drafting Carolina players. Anthony Ticci, uh, who played against Michael in high school and then played against him at Wake Forest, said, you know, one of the big things is that Michael never got the credit for having the character to play at North Carolina in a system that was designed to disguise and disguise his athleticism and cut him off from using it. And yet Michael did that willfully. Why do you Uh, think
0: he did that willfully? I mean, he, he had to have been somewhat of an egomaniac, correct? And, and to be able to kind of take that role and, and stand back and really adapt that system. I mean, that's pretty remarkable.
1: You know, I think Michael is a competitive maniac. Um, I, and he had, uh, he had an ego, but I wouldn't think he's an ego maniac. I gotcha. I, I do think Michael was very steeped in respect. He, uh, did not think he wanted to go to the university of Virginia and Terry Holland, the coach at UVA. Uh, Michael wrote, wrote him personally and asked to be recruited because Michael didn't believe that he could um, get off the bench at North Carolina. And that's what everyone in Wilmington believed, that he would not play there. Hmm. And he liked Ralph Sampson. He knew he could play at UVA, and he wanted to go there. Yet when Michael went on his recruiting trip to Carolina, he, he you you heard him coming before you saw him. He came <laughs> Very loud, very boastful, um, which sort of indicated the level of fear he had about all of that. But, uh, you know, there was an instant thing. He had this ability to listen. There was instant feedback from the coaches. As Ralph Sampson told me for the Jordan book, you know, you have to to look at it. Michael was a great player, he had a great work ethic, he did all this stuff. But he also had a lot of things given to him in, in a certain way. And Michael sort of expressed it this way when I was talking to him. He said, timing is everything. And he had perfect timing in so much of his career. He came along right when UNC needed a starter at his position. And he, no one was thinking that would happen. And yet here, here it came right as a, a freshman and uh, a, a rare thing for Dean Smith because his system was so disciplined. The, the irony, of course, also in this connection, this really, the years he spent at Carolina put Michael in a format ultimately to be successful as a pro. And what most people don't realize, North Carolina didn't run Tex Winner's triangle offense. But Tex Winner coached college at Kansas State and he had a point guard at Kansas State who then went on to become Tex Winters assistant coach and they ran the triangle for many years and this point guard and assistant coach later wound up at North Carolina. Do you know who that might be? I do not. It was Bill Guthridge, Coach Gut. Hmm. And he was in charge of running much of Dean Smith's system and setting it up. And so he had a profound influence from Tex Winter and the Carolina system. Tex didn't say everybody has to run the triangle. He said everyone needs a philosophy, an offensive system. And North Carolina had that. Uh, And yet at the same time, it became the thing that prevented Michael from Uh, going on to win a championship his last year in college, his junior season, because when they lost to Indiana, they really didn't have the ability to go outside their system, to turn Michael loose, to go one-on-one. It just wasn't in their DNA. And Dean Smith was so fierce about his system and about how Carolina should look, you know, Michael had that tremendous dunk against Maryland and the ACC ran it and all their promos. And it was it was a pretty big thing. And Dean Smith wouldn't even allow it to be shown on his coaching show.
0: Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's that's pretty remarkable. He he didn't allow that. And I mean, just really showed the system that Mike had to adapt to. But then Mike transitions to the NBA. You want to talk about kind of his early days with the Bulls, how that first transpired and maybe some of the things he had going on off the court with Sonny Vaccaro and Nike.
1: Right. Uh, that it, it was quite a, a bit. You know, Kevin Lockery was, um, was an old-style pro guy. He, he really liked to open it up, believed in the star system, that star players just make themselves known. they got to have the ball. And, and Michael's high school coach, to a degree, had allowed him to explore his athleticism. And Michael's high school coach, even though he was by far the tallest guy on the team, except for one other kid, instead of sticking him down front, he, he put the ball in Michael's hand. And so uh, Michael went from a, a, a place in high school where he could really explore his athleticism to a very buttoned down Carolina. Then he comes in and Kevin Lockery, who is an old friend of Phil Jackson's, Um. Comes in and lets Michael lose, and and Michael, you know, has that remarkable season. He's destroying. The, the Bulls were a problem when Michael came to the NBA in 1984. They were loaded with cocaine abusers. It was a, you know, the 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 remnants of a very difficult era in the NBA.
0: I mean, they they still had the uh, the plexiglass up from the hockey games, right?
1: Right, they did. <laughs> yeah. You had to watch Bulls games through the plexiglass. I mean, that's
0: unbelievable to think what happened a few years later. <laughs>
1: Especially with a star like that, right? <laughs> but they really didn't know they had a star until they had him. But um, you know, it was—he uh, was just so phenomenal and and running end to end, and uh, you know, the fear of embarrassment was his main weapon. Everybody who played against him, whether it was practice or in a game, really began to. Um, uh, to feel this fear about being embarrassed because he, he, he just was, well, what we all know he came to be. And it was a, uh, it was a phenomenal thing, but, um, Michael was on, you know, there was a lot of conflict. Jerry Krause had come in, the bulls had been sold for virtually on the, on the block for, for nothing. And so Jerry Reinsdorf had come in. He brought in Jerry Krause, this baseball guy who had also a background as an NBA scout. But, you know, they they went through coaches. Krause wanted Phil Jackson. That was his goal at some point. A guy he just believed would be a great coach. It was sort of a weird thing. But, you know, Kevin Lockery. And Krause went through several coaches trying to get them to accept Phil as an assistant coach. And when Krause came in, he fired Kevin Lockery, but Lockery and Phil had worked together with the New Jersey Nets. And the irony for Krause, who did all of this homework and really studied things, He missed that his big opportunity to bring Phil Jackson to the Bulls was in Kevin Lockery. The two men were friends, had worked together, had a great rapport. And so that didn't happen. And so Michael ended up playing for all these coaches that, uh, you know, Stan Albeck, uh, uh, Doug Collins. And he became very cynical, Uh, Michael did. And uh, that cynicism... Uh, Jerry Krause once said, you, you know uh, how to create a 50 caliber asshole. You take a, a kid out of college, you, you you pay him a lot of money and then you you jerk him around a lot and you don't give him <laughs> the, the right coach. And Michael became very cynical, you know, and um, very distrusting of management, distrusting of the process. And that's where Phil Jackson came in. Uh, and, and Michael was. This phenomenal player, but they weren't the Bulls weren't accomplishing much in team goals, and that's where Phil had to come in and uh, sort of reteach him system basketball and sharing the ball and doing those things that are are counterintuitive to the to the star system of the
0: NBA. Yeah, I mean, that's no easy task, what Phil had to do. And I've heard you say you think he's the most manipulative person on the planet. I mean, what was Phil doing specifically with Jordan to really get him to buy in and then to accomplish this this unbelievable error for the Bulls?
1: Well, the the most manip- manipulative thing is that he realized that that Michael had to be I don't want to say beaten into submission, but this cynical Michael Jordan was a very strong personality who had become set in bad ways. Uh, Very cynical, as I said. And so Phil was the quiet source for Sam Smith's book, The Jordan Rules, which exposed both Jordan and Jerry Krause as total assholes. (laughs) And um, when Krause grew furious about this, and Phil was doing this to sort of beat Michael into a submission of sorts to get him to change. And Phil has said this in other ways, and it's taken him years to come clean on some of it. But uh, Phil, uh, uh, the heat was turned up on the Bulls uh, franchise because Krauss was furious, Jordan was furious, and uh, they, they, they wanted the head of whoever had leaked all this inside, unflattering material about both of them to Sam Smith. And Sam Smith... Uh, had admitted off the record to Jerry Reinsdorf that it was Phil. But Phil, unknown to Reinsdorf and, and Krause at the time, Phil blamed it all on Johnny Bach, his other elderly assistant coach. And there's no question that Johnny was a champion uh, of Michael's and had encouraged him to do this and sometimes would say, fuck the triangle, attack Michael. Uh, you know, Johnny was an old... Uh, um, uh, Navy aviator. He would quote Admiral bull Halsey to him about attack, attack, attack. But Johnny Bach had never, um, seeded any kind of insurgency. He was just, uh, you know, um, a mentor. And I had a very close relationship with Michael, but when Jerry Krause was told that Bach had, um, had seated and told all this information to Sam Smith, which was not true, it was Phil, but when Krause was told that, he demanded that Phil fire Johnny Bach. And Phil did that, and I have Phil on tape telling me I hated to fire Johnny Bach, but there was no question that he had leaked all this information about Krause and Jordan to Sam Smith. Uh, And Phil was just blatantly lying to me in one of these interviews we did in 1995. But he had done that. uh, He'd gotten away with it. He'd covered his own tail. Uh, Johnny Bach had, had, you know, feel such a control freak. He didn't like the idea that Johnny Bach had that influence with Michael. So he'd gotten rid of Johnny Bach. He had sort of beaten Michael into uh, enough submission to get him to become more of a a team player. Uh, It was an incredibly cynical move.
0: Today, what got you there is being fueled by Soniva Super Coffee. Suniva provides an organic bottled coffee blended with lactose-free protein and MCTs from coconut oil for all-day energy. Grab a bottle at your local Whole Foods market or use discount code WGYT at drinksupercoffee.com for 20% off your order. As someone who's always looking for ways to improve my mental and physical performance, I started using 4 Sigmatic about a year ago and I love their products. At 4 Sigmatic, they believe in the real magic of functional mushrooms like reishi, chaga, cordyceps, and lion's mane, as well as other superfoods and adaptogens to help us live healthier, more enhanced lives. Everyone's talking about 4 Sigmatic, including Time Magazine, Vogue, Forbes, even the New York Times. My favorite product is their convenient new Brain Stick Pack, perfect before a workout or study session. Their dual mushroom blend supports memory attention and brain health. I also have been using their Cordyceps before workouts and love the results. I've experienced the benefits of these delicious packets, but now it's time for you to as well. To receive 15% off your order, use discount code WGYT at checkout at foursigmatic.com or by heading to foursigmatic.com forward slash WGYT. I mean, I want to pull back the curtain. What was it like behind the scenes for the Bulls at this time? Specifically, Jordan, I want to know what his, his daily routines were like, what his interactions were, with teammates were. I mean, how did that go? Was, was he beloved by teammates? Was he hated?
1: Um, I, you know, I, I, obviously he made them successful. I, I think they were just very wary of him and a lot of them learned pretty quickly to sort of avoid those circumstances where he could give you the business, whether it was running your mouth on the team bus or, uh, uh, shirking responsibility and practice. Um,
0: I mean, he's one of the greatest trash talkers of all time, right?
1: Right. And, uh, you you know, Michael could, you know, first of all, during scrimmages, he could just humiliate and abuse you. Uh, But but it also was this ability to just say things. And, you know, he was the dominant male on the team. That was true before Phil Jackson. But when Phil Jackson came along, he was a guy who believed deeply in the hierarchy of a team and where a lot of coaches pretend that it's a democracy. Phil always dispensed with that and said, this is the hierarchy. This guy's number one. And then, you know, it's sort of like his belief in the wolf back. You know, you have to have the alpha male, the lead wolf And, you know, Phil just dispensed with any discussion of that. It was obvious it was Michael, and so Michael was the top of the hierarchy. There were a lot of ways that Michael did what he did. He was a person. He could also be charming, um, but he could just be brutally tough on teammates. Uh, They hired George Mumford, the team psychologist, to come in. And he had a lot of things to do, he was teaching meditation, he was doing working with all the group dynamic stuff. But one of his main jobs was to teach Michael just enough compassion to allow the team unity to build.
0: Uh, did, did Mike really buy into what George was teaching him?
1: Uh, you know, not at first, but pretty soon he did, and that's been true of everyone. You know, uh, one of the, George Mumford is African American. He has a roomed with Doctor J at UMass. He he's got a master's in, in psychology. Uh, he's uh, he's an uh, expert in martial arts, but he is this really big uh, mindfulness and meditation expert. Uh, really done a lot of work in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, George is a Boston native, and the fact that he was African American was critical because a lot of um, a lot of African American families are pretty conservative. They're religious in their background. Uh, they're suspicious of things outside their religion. Uh, that's not cor- just true of African Americans, of course. People of all religious faiths uh, cling to their to their faith uh, for a reason, and they are suspicious of um, foreign doctrines, so to speak. But uh, George Mumford um, was a very different person with a very different and complete intelligence, bringing this mesh in, me, uh, message to uh, the Bulls players and. It wasn't long before Michael told him, you know, if if I'd met you earlier in my career, I wouldn't have spent half my life um, locked up in my hotel room, afraid to go out. Why did he say that? Because, uh, you know, the things that George talked about were, were basically liberating for Jordan. They were things, uh, you know. Obviously a lot of things he did were very important to the bull's success but some of them weren't some of them were things that <clears throat> uh that locked him in that hotel room you know uh just um the lack of skills to deal with uh and, and a lot of people it, it, it's like um a uh, an nba player Ice Gervin told me he was J- Jordan's roommate and he, he said, you know, man, Michael's like Elvis, man, you get that kind of fame, you know, Nike marketed him so hard. You get that kind of fame. It killed Elvis. <laughs> and, um, I, it was true. He was right on about it. I mean, Jordan, by the time Phil did, you know, by 1990, uh, nine at 89, 90, um, Michael was extremely famous. He, I mean, he had godlike status. The Bulls' PR staff referred to him as Jesus. Tim Hallam, the PR guy, would come in and ask his assistants, "Have you seen Jesus today?" And so the worship of Jordan was profound. Uh, it was quite a uh, set of circumstances.
0: Wow, that really is. I mean, I want to transition now into his draconian work ethic. And I know he was part of what was called the breakfast club with their, their morning workouts. What was that like? How do you start implementing this routine?
1: Well, Dean Smith, first of all, didn't like a lot of weightlifting. And that had affected Jordan. But then he had come up against the Pistons. And I mean, it was just a physical beating. Um, that alone w- makes it so hard to compare Jordan with players in this era. As you know, beginning in 2005, the league began disallowing things like hand-checking, which is huge, any kind of physical contact on the guards. It allowed no bumping of the cutters coming through the lane in the NBA. I mean, that that was all standard part of basketball. But the Pistons took it to the extreme with Jordan. They literally beat him out of the air. And so he was taking this beating – uh, you know, he was sitting at the back of the bus, finally crying in frustration because he had all this ability, all this competitiveness, in, and yet the Pistons were just really thuggish in how they dealt with it. And the league really wasn't in a position to do anything about it. And it created the idea that in Michael's mind, as people talked to him, that he had to get strong enough. Uh, to deal with it physically and so that began his weight training the breakfast club stuff the the things he did to to make himself able to withstand the the very physical dirty NBA that he was playing in Tex winner always had the opinion that that, that challenge from the Pistons is what elevated Michael to true greatness. His answering that challenge is what made him the the, the great player who won championships. And so I, I remember spending a lot of time discussing the league's plans to change rules. And today, we have an NBA where a lot of games just look like silly all-star games. There is no... The guards are not... Uh, and wings are not allowed to touch in, in any way, impede in any way with a hand check the offensive player. So you know we have we have all this movement now. If they move their feet well enough, and it we will see examples of excellent offense today. But uh, and, and sometimes the hand check was just lazy, thuggish stuff that people were able to get away with, like the league that Michael Jordan played in.
0: I mean, I, I'm so fascinated, too, by MJ's stamina. I mean, part of the Breakfast Club. I mean, he has these legendary stories of playing 36 holes and then going out and playing a game. I mean, what did a typical day look like for Mike?
1: Well, you know, Michael was a man of great appetite. He didn't sleep much. Uh, he would exhaust the people that ran around with him because he, he, he could do all these things. that would catch up with him from time to time in an NBA game. It would catch up with him in playoff games. But uh, the the his peers in the NBA first realized it with the '92 Dream Team. It was Michael just didn't sleep? He, he would play the card games. He would play golf, and he was up all the time. I, I even uh, was writing a section at one point where I, I sort of compared him to Jack Nicholson. Uh, playing the devil in, uh, what was that film? Uh, in, in, anyway, Jack, uh, you know, he's got the the coven of uh, women. And uh, Jack Nicholson is this man of just prodigious appetites. He's sort of Satan on earth. And that was Jordan. He didn't have the appetites of Babe Ruth. He wouldn't eat 14 hot dogs and go <laughs> but, he he had those kinds of appetites he loved to the point that you know his flu game in um in utah supposedly had been up all night playing cards and yeah that could be the, the mj hangover game right yeah I, it, it it could <laughs> well be considered that it's it's just part of the uh uh it, it's part of the the endless stream of stories about who Michael really is. And, you know, part of that is that Nike really did such a brilliant job, and Gatorade too, the, of marketing him as this figure. He was the first African-American, but he was the first superstar marketed so brilliantly. And my, my goal in doing this book, uh, you know, they— Michael came along in uh, the 1980s. We were pretty new in integration. We certainly were new. We were really about a decade and a half into a lot of integration in this culture. And um, the marketing people felt it necessary basically to divorce Michael from his African-American heritage, and uh, my goal in in doing this book was to reconnect him to that heritage because it explained him as a person it explained him as and his approach to politics it explained so many mysteries about him plus it it, it gave credit to all of the things that his family brought to who he is yeah i mean
0: there was so much you uncovered uh in your book with him even even from the hall of fame speech that left kind of a sour taste in so many people's mouths but i want to transition to another celebrity athlete and one of the all-time greats you you wrote about was kobe Bryant. i was a huge fan of kobe and what he was able to do in the game of basketball can we start at the young kobe what he was like growing up in italy
1: well, you know, I was uh, in search. I had done a book earlier on Kobe. I, you know, I was covering the bull stuff and I set out in 96, the fall of 96 to look at all the rookies coming into the league to see who could possibly step up, uh, uh, this, this, uh, lineage of Jordan as this supreme competitor, you know, I, I I talked to all these guys. I went and watched them. They were fascinating. But Kobe was just the guy. And I really didn't understand his family story. Um, Then I I did a book called Mad Game, the NBA education of Kobe Bryant about his first couple of years in the league and how truly difficult it was. But um, by the end of his career, I wanted to do a biography that explained because so much of what we thought about Kobe was incorrect. And uh, so much of it uh, had created an image of him as this manipulative kid who was spoiled rotten and able to dictate all of these things and was demanding to go to the Lakers and you know somebody who annoyed the public the way you get annoyed when you're in a in line at the post office or at a <laughs> some guy just comes out of nowhere and cuts in front of you that was one way rick fox explained to me what it felt like to be even his teammates felt that way with the lakers and in fact kobe was this very organic competitor from a young age you know he He ended up because his father, Joe Bryant, sort of burned out his NBA career early and wound up playing in Italy. Kobe sort of came of age at five and six, and spent uh, through about age thirteen, spent the winters in Italy where his father played, and Kobe would play with Italian teammates, and you know he would leave them crying and uh, upset because he you know he would. He was just this guy from a young age that was just obsessed with winning his, and and really trusted no one. And the fact that he was in Italy made it worse because Italy's a wonderful place, but basketball there was a joyous affair. It, you know, it really suited his father, who was a true showboat player, loved uh, playing, he was called jelly bean. Kobe's father was, and he loved just sort of playing this loosey goosey game that really got little traction in the NBA. Um, and Kobe was just the opposite. Kobe learned to be a pro. He would ride those team buses. He was, a, uh, you know, he, he mopped the sweat off the floors, uh, at the games and, uh, but lived a complete pro life as this little kid. And uh, one of Joe's Italian League teammates recalled Kobe riding on the bus with them as a little kid. And he had, he was already studying the NBA, looking at videotape. And uh, Kobe, the little kid, looked at these two teammates, his father and his teammate, and said, I'm going to be better than both of you guys.
0: What age was he when he did that?
1: He was probably eight. <laughs> And he, Kobe, just had this. Um, another, uh, I interviewed a guy who was an adolescent in Tuscany, in Torello, this little mountain village where Kobe and his family lived, while his father uh, played um, uh, in the Italian league. Uh, they lived there a couple of years, and and there was this court on the on this mountainside. It was just in the stand of trees. It was sort of an irregular court above the soccer field, and all the neighbor all the neighborhood mountains village kids would play there, and they'd play basketball uh, some days. And this guy, I remember, by the time I interviewed him, it was you know a few years ago, and he would he was thinking back to playing those games with Kobe. He said his face there was never anything on his face, but just this very very serious look and you know you'd have these Italian kids laughing and having a good time and Kobe was just buzzing through all of them always with a you know just total focus a a focus a frown uh, all the time just so wired over it, and that really was the Kobe who returned to the U.S. So. And found himself in the Philly suburbs. And, you know, again, people assumed that his family took him to the suburbs to avoid the competition in the public league in Philadelphia, which was no – it was – the public league was so rough, the state of Philadelphia wouldn't even allow the public league to play in the state tournament. Uh, the basketball was so, so good but so physical, you know, and really just sort of inner city tough. And they wanted to protect the other high schools from, hmm. you know, this this was a league that produced Earl, the Pearl, and all the all the other special players that came out of Philly. And so Kobe was views, viewed as this adolescent who was trying to avoid all that. But actually, before long before Kobe was born, when Joe Bryant played. Uh, Began playing as a rookie for the Philadelphia 76ers. He got an amazing contract because of the circumstances and, you know, was making a million dollars when nobody had anything. And they went to the suburbs and bought a house out there that had once belonged to Muhammad Ali. And that house... Was uh, was kept by the Bryan family, and when they would return from Italy in the summer, they'd stay there, and that became their permanent home. And that had him in the district to play at Lower Marion High School in the Philly suburbs. And so, but it it was just one of these many things that led that led to this, where Michael, where timing was everything for Michael. Kobe was on this path to this horrendous public relations in which he was terribly misunderstood.
0: I mean, who had a bigger impact creating that killer, his mom or his dad?
1: Well, you know, I really have to say, you know, they say his mother's personality is the killer. And that's like Mo Howard, you know, the great Maryland guard who he played with, um, was a dear friend uh, of Joe Bryant's so they were, Uh, philly kids playing basketball and uh, that was his opinion and the opinion of many others that that joe was happy-go-lucky and pam bryant kobe's mother was all business but you know the biggest thing and and that certainly said his i mean he had a fierce personality no question of that
0: was he more fierce than mike
1: Uh, I wouldn't say so. No, but close, you know, Kobe could fire a basketball in practice. He did it with the Lakers. He did it at lower Marion. If you didn't look around and see it, it'd take your head off. He he wasn't opposed to, to threatening teammates and being a threatening figure by any stretch. He would, he did whatever it took. He, you know, his high school coach, Greg Downer had to manage the personality, as one of Kobe's teammates explained. But the real thing about Kobe, it it really became a function of the shoe business. Kobe wasn't demanding to turn pro out of high school. His father was was in serious financial straits. He'd come home from the Italian League. The family had a very... uh, Uh, expensive lifestyle and Joe needed money. And so that was sort of the genesis of it. And this wasn't known at the time. Joe had played 16 years of pro basketball and everyone assumed that he was a rich man, but, uh, he was not, uh, they had lived, um, well, probably too well. And so, um, the timing for Kobe was that Sonny Vaccaro, the the shoe magnate, had been mysteriously fired by Nike in 1991, and Vaccaro wanted revenge against Nike and against the NCAA, who had uh, treated him shabbily and had treated Vaccaro's friend Jerry Tarkanian shabbily in their investigation of Tarkanian. And so, Vaccaro's big idea for revenge was to find. You know, Vaccaro had played a huge role in the creation of Air Jordan for Nike. He had he had persuaded Nike, of course, to to go all in for Jordan at a time when no one knew what Jordan was going to be. But um, he wanted to steal the next Jordan. From Nike and the NCAA. And he went to work for Adidas. And at first, he thought that next Jordan would be Felipe Lopez. But, and he wanted to steal this next Jordan by offering them a shoot contract to turn pro, which meant you would have someone go pro right out of high school to the NBA. Now, it had been done before, you know, when the ABA came along, but uh, it, it hadn't happened very much, and it had been with mixed success, as it always will be when someone that young turns pro. But, uh, and and Sonny Vaquero ha- didn't know of, of Kobe Bryant's existence, although it, he soon enough came to... Vaquero's attention, and Vaquero realized this was the kid with the it factor. So
0: what, what did Kobe do that made Sonny realize this kid had it?
1: Um, nothing. Um, Kobe, uh, Kobe's father had been the MVP. Sonny Vaquero had a high school all-star game that, all, that became a big hit in the 60s because all the college coaches could go see the top high school players in America. And so it sort of became the forerunner of the meat market. Uh, Sonny was this guy out of Pittsburgh who was also working for gambling interests in Vegas uh, part of the year. And the other part of the year, he was running this tournament of top high school players. And Joe Bryant in 1972 was the MVP of Sonny's tournament, which was the best play, the best of the best. And so. Sonny was holding a tournament in 1994 when Kobe was a sophomore. After a sophomore year, and Joe Bryant, you know, it was it was exclusive by invitation only. When I say that, uh, I, I say a tournament. It was a a shoe event. You know, the camp, the ABCD camp. And, uh, out of nowhere, Joe Bryant showed up with his skinny sophomore son and Sonny Vacaro hadn't seen Joe Bryant 22 years, hadn't laid eyes on him, remembered vaguely who he was, but Joe Bryant shows up and begs Sonny to allow him into this invitation only camp the day of the camp, hmm. uh, as you know, with elite athletes it's really hard to get into those camps. You
0: yeah. don't <laughs> almost impossible.
1: And, but Joe had been the MVP. And so Sonny, just something struck him and Kobe played for a sophomore. He played brilliantly. It wasn't the best, but, but right after he, as soon as, as he was finished, Kobe ran over to Sonny Vaccaro, you know, Vaccaro's uh full Italian guy kissing you on both cheeks and <laughs> and, and all this stuff. And so uh, Kobe runs over and gives him a big hug and says, Mr. Vicero, thank you for letting me in this camp. I, I wasn't the best player here, but I promise you next year I will be. And Sonny Vicero had been looking for that guy with the it factor, and it almost knocked him in the floor. He said, this is the guy. And he began this very uh, surreptitious recruitment of Kobe Bryant. Now, much of my book is about the effort behind the scenes that Vaccaro made, uh, you know, arranging Kobe's age. And it was uh, Vaccaro and Adidas that arranged for him to go to the Lakers, arranged for him to be seen by Jerry West arranged for all of these things to happen. This was all in the interest of Adidas. It was not something that the Bryants were even thinking about. It it sort of hit them out of the blue that Kobe might wind up with the Lakers, which was Joe's favorite team and his favorite player was Magic. But later, when, when Kobe became this guy who turned pro with this fabulous Adidas contract, right out of high school, I mean, the people who got furious over this, I mean, it was ugly. And, and it was assumed that this was just a kid out of control. And these assumptions about Kobe followed him for 20 years of his NBA career. And Kobe really never said anything to the contrary. Because I don't really think he ha- he wasn't stopping to think about you know, the genesis of his career, he was really focused on being the greatest. I mean, he he was brash. He had plenty of arrogance. Don't get me wrong. But it did not extend to the level that the public assumed. And that included guys like me in the media. I was as fascinated by his arrogance as I was by his talent when I wrote <laughs> that first book about him. And he was viewed as sort of this pariah. And not only that, but he was the first bonus baby. You know, then vaquero went out the next year and got Tracy McGrady. And, and the, the whole process began. And today we have a very young NBA because of all of this. It was, um, it was the, um, Sea change. Kobe Bryant was the sea change that gives us the game we had today.
0: Hmm. I mean, you mentioned his desire to be the greatest of all time. You, can you hit on maybe one story where he really showed that he had the desire and would do anything, whether it be a type of practice? I know there's legendary stories of him showing up hours before anyone else and shooting thousands of shots. Anything like that really come to front of mind?
1: Uh, literally every day. I mean, you know, you'd have these guys that were playing for these uh, NBA uh, scouts and general managers trying to play their way into games and uh, or or into the league. Uh, When Kobe was a uh, senior in high school and these guys, you know, the Sixers let him into their game. But when they were doing the tryouts for him, he would show up in a coat and tie and change into his clothes. He would show up early. Uh, I, I mean, he was such a pro about everything. And uh, Iverson, the the Sixers were really torn that year. They had the first overall pick, and Brad Greenberg, their new GM, wanted to draft Allen Iverson. And all of their scouts, after working out everybody, and uh, they wanted to draft Kobe. That included Gene Shue and all the different people in the organization. They were on their record then saying they wanted him number one. They at least wanted, um, wanted to trade Stackhouse, Jerry Stackhouse, a former Carolina player, to Charlotte for Kobe's rights at least. <clears throat> but Brad Greenberg wouldn't do it. Allen Iverson had had a poor workout. He later had a good workout with them, but um, everywhere Kobe went, he was this guy. Occasionally, he would dip down and not have a great workout, but everywhere he went as a high school kid, uh, he—you know—the the NBA had its uh, had started its program for high school kids. It's uh, it's All Star game for high school kids and the whole thing of it was we want you to develop camaraderie and to be great friends. And by then this was Kobe's junior summer and he went to the camp and he had friends he had met on the circuit and stuff. And, uh, uh, you know, Donnie Carr, a great Philadelphia player at Roman Catholic was there. He and Kobe had battled furiously and, um, Donnie, uh, remembered walking into camp they would picked up their fans they were going in and uh kobe said dc i'm not talking this week don't come by my room i'm not visiting with anybody i'm here to be the number to make myself the number one high school player in america i don't want to talk to anybody this is all business wow and uh sure enough um he accomplished that that week uh You know, his rise was a function of his determination. Now, there's no question Joe Bryant had scores to settle because his own career had been so disappointing and he had lacked confidence. But you just described every parent there. They all (laughs) have an agenda. But you can have all the agenda you want as a parent, but if the child is not driven like a maniac, those kinds of things don't happen. And this really, he did have an NBA father. There were obviously benefits to that. He was raised in Italy, spoke multiple languages. All those things factored in. You know, Adidas was a company owned by Europeans. When Sonny Vaccaro realized what er everything that Kobe was, it was a lot easier for him to sell adidas on on this guy hey here's a guy that speaks italian you know he he's ever he's got the it factor you know um and so all of those things factored in but none of it mattered felipe lopez did not want to turn pro out of high school he wanted no part none of them did lamar odom none of those guys It, it took And Kobe, truth be told, wanted to go to Duke and wanted to go to college. I think that's why he ended up throwing his parents. Um, Four years later, he threw his parents, his sisters, uh, Sonny Vaquero, Adidas, his agent, eventually his coach and Shaquille O'Neal, all of these people out of his life because he was fed up with the manipulation of them. And, um, you know, manipulation breeds tremendous resentment as George, George Mumford became Kobe's mentor as well later. And George Mumford explained, you know, no one in the Lakers organization knew that Kobe did all this. It remained secret to them for years. There would be a Twitter of whispers around the NBA, but the scope of what he did as, as Sonny Vaccaro told me, he, he was like the Russians with the Romanovs. He got <laughs> rid of everybody. And he literally just uh, removed them from his life, uh, had their cars towed, closed the business he had that employed them, sold the house out from under them, uh, changed his phone number so they couldn't contact him. It was, um, it had a brutal efficiency to it. Wow, (laughs) man. And, you know, it's never been – part of it was his parents were so locked in and in so deep and spending his money. And, you know, Kobe's father wanted to own an Italian basketball team. And Joe basically tried to run it like an NBA team, and he spent lavishly on players and bankrupted it in about a year. They bought uh, Olympia Milan. I know the New York Yankees of the Italian league and Kobe and they had a partner from Wisconsin in this team and they lost millions. Um, and, you know, it was a great embarrassment. The Italian the group of Italian businessmen just took it off their hands. They, had, I mean, it was a crushing loss and Kobe lost a lot of faith in his father, but there were all kinds of things like that. That led to this this, um, this disenfranchisement of his family, but it became long term. His mother had such a reach; she um, she was re- very aggressive in uh, in controlling Kobe's life, and he, he you know, and it also centered on his fiance and attempts to break them up, or what he perceived as that. And so, um, it's quite a story. It certainly is. Oh my gosh. (laughs) He eliminated his family. And this was not just a family. This was a family admired everywhere they went. The kids were like Huxtables. The mother dressed them. They were, you know, they were smart, smart, smart. They spoke multiple languages they were cute. they appeared on Italian television. They were admired like royalty in Philadelphia. And the scope of what Kobe did never came out only in whispers. And uh, the bitterness in that, you know, when Kobe was, the, it was known in certain parts of Philadelphia, and I think, in retrospect, Part of his booing at the All-Star Game in Philadelphia by the crowd uh, was probably word of mouth on the streets of Philadelphia that he had treated his parents badly. People didn't know what he had done. But um, it's one of those things where when you look at it at face value, you say, how could a guy do this to his family? But then when you look at how his life, uh he had been so manipulated and you know they they had control of his money and uh they were trying to control you know he wanted to to be married so he could compete he, he did not like living with he bought his family a house behind his house in Pacific Palisades that's the one he sold out from under them because you know they would just come into his house when he was there with his girlfriend it was just These are typical things that happen in families, but his response to it all, because he was ultimately in a position of power, that part of it was probably not typical.
0: Yeah, just some unbelievable stories, and I I can't thank you enough for kind of pulling back the curtain on two of the most legendary players of all time. So, I mean, I'm sure the listeners got a lot out of this and cannot wait to pick up your books. Where should we direct them? Where can they stay connected with you?
1: Well, they can always – Amazon is obviously the world's largest bookstore. You can find Michael Jordan, The Life at Amazon. You can find Showboat, The Life of Kobe Bryant at Amazon. But it's also in Barnes & Noble and bookstores everywhere. Uh, Showboat is now coming out in paperback. For the first time. And um, both of these, if you, if you speak or read other languages, Jordan, I believe, is in 14 languages and Kobe, the Kobe book will soon be in nine or 10. And so these are figures that um, are of immense interest around the globe. I've been amazed by how much they are worshipped from afar.
0: And I know why. They were both fascinating reads, and I'll be sure to get all of that linked up in the show notes. But thank you so much for joining us on What Got You There.
1: Really enjoyed it. You take care.
0: You too. Thank you. As someone who's always looking for ways to improve my mental and physical performance, I started using 4 Sigmatic about a year ago and I love their products. At 4 Sigmatic, they believe in the real magic of functional mushrooms like reishi, chaga, cordyceps, and lion's mane, as well as other superfoods and adaptogens to help us live healthier, more enhanced lives. Everyone's talking about 4 Sigmatic, including Time Magazine, Vogue, Forbes, even the New York Times. My favorite product is their convenient new Brain Stick Pack, perfect before a workout or a study session. Their dual mushroom blend supports memory attention and brain health. I also have been using their Cordyceps before workouts and love the results. I've experienced the benefits of these delicious packets, but now it's time for you to as well. To receive 15% off your order, use discount code WGYT at checkout at foursigmatic.com or by heading to foursigmatic.com forward slash WGYT. If you're looking for a way to stay energized throughout the entire day, grab a bottle of Suniva Super Coffee. Suniva is something I drink on a daily basis. It's an organic bottled coffee blend with lactose-free protein and MCTs from coconut oil, which provides me with clean all day energy. Head to your local Whole Foods or use discount code WGYT at drinksupercoffee.com for 20% off your order. Suniva was founded by three college athletes who are brothers and wanted a cleaner way to stay energized throughout the entire day. Let's face it, we all wanna look good in the clothes we wear, but I got tired of sifting through the racks looking for a quality pair of jeans that cost less than $300. Then I found Distilled. DSTLD, pronounced Distilled, offers premium denim and essentials at an affordable price. Their products cost just one-third of what other premium brands charge because Distilled refuses to work with middlemen, bringing savings directly to you. Just go to DSTLD.com right now and use the promo code JOURNEY10 in all caps at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh. Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.